Indeed, to have one side of you is to be filled with a sense of your glory. The smallest glimpse of that glory should rapture the heart of your children and of your people to want to give to you not only our words, but to give you our entire lives, to give our entire beings to that which promotes your glory, your truth, your majesty is revealed in your Son. And Father, we thank you that you have given us the gathering together, the, the rhythm of our lives as Christians to come together, to sing together, to pray together, to read your word together, to fellowship together in Christ, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, and to enjoy one another all under our common faith and desire to exalt our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So thank you for designing that, and may you fulfill that work of yours in us as we gather now to hear from you and your written word and to remember you and the symbols and the signs of the table that you have instituted for us as we rejoice in your sacrifice that has secured our salvation, as we remember in your spirit that is given to us and dwells us, seals us, binds us together to you and reminds us that you are our soon and coming king. To that end, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, in light of the last uh, several months, uh, going through and looking at Christ's messages to the seven churches uh, that are throughout uh, Asia Minor, there recorded for us, it was uh, quite obvious, as we've taken some time to consider, that uh, in most of these churches, the message of Christ was one of small on encouragement and heavy on rebuke and a calling and an exhortation to these churches to repent. There were two glorious exceptions. But it is a reality that is is unavoidable, really, that uh, when Christ is addressing the church, he is constantly having to expose the reality that many are a part of his fellowship who are professing his name, who are unregenerate, who actually do not know him who actually are outside of his saving grace. And so it's hard not to have a question in our minds as going through there, as we looked at his message to the churches, uh, who then is saved? Who then is saved? And what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to actually be a Christian? Uh, Or better, even it should be personalized, as you would think about Scripture's warnings and Christ's own warnings, how do I know that I am a Christian? How do I know that I truly have Christ's life in me? This is, of course, the most important question that anyone could ask or answer. It's the most important reality about ourselves. So I say that for this reason. So for the next three to four weeks, uh, we're going to wait just a moment before we move back into the next section of Revelation and actually take that time to consider the question of what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to share in the life of Christ? And so we're going to answer that question by taking these next few weeks to look at the small epistle in the back of your Bibles, 1 John, the letter of 1 John. Now, obviously, uh, to go through all five chapters of the letter of 1 John would take a significant amount of time. That's not the goal. It's to take it broadly and to look at some key themes that run throughout the, the epistle and to answer that question. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be born again? And so that's what we're going to do. Now, John's epistle has often been recognized as a clear presentation of what it means to be regenerate, to truly share in the life of Christ. And so that is a worthy place then to spend our time. But I want to introduce it rather by rather than just jumping in to kind of illustrate this reality a little more. That, it, that it's possible to have a, a various levels of attachment to the church visibly and yet not actually have the life of Christ in us. It's possible to have various levels of commitment to the professing church and even to the gospel with our lips while knowing none of its power, none of its saving power, none of its sanctifying power, in fact none of its reality. And so... In order to illustrate that, I want to begin, and this will take up a significant time of the introduction, to consider two historical examples that I think really set this well for us as we are coming into this epistle. 
Uh, and the historical examples are going to be in Charles, John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. Names that are familiar to us, they're familiar to us many, especially John and Charles Wesley through their hymns, particularly Charles Wesley, but also because of the significant role that John Wesley played in part of the Great Awakening in America as he is known for his evangelism. They were marked as Christian leaders both in their time and as they've endured their ministries throughout the corridors of time even to us today, which is why we are mentioning them. Now, while we might know their lives, at least in some general sense, by what they did later in terms of evangelistic zeal and hymn writing and even through John forming a foundation, what we call Methodist, uh, we may be less familiar with the story that is of their conversion that, is, that preceded their ministry that we are more familiar with. Let me just kind of give an overview of it. Now, John and Charles were sons of clergymen. Their father was actually an ordained priest in the Church of England. He was an Anglican. And being raised in the church, they very early on, fairly so, showed an interest in the gospel and in the religious life and in many ways following in the life of their father. John gives an account of how early on he used to be fascinated to see his father sit around with other pastors and discuss theology and politics and the church and all of those things. And it captured his attention. And this eventually carried John and Charles, who by the fact were two children of 11. Eight of their children uh, died in infancy, but she, they had 11 children overall. And John was the oldest brother and Charles behind him. Well, they together ended up eventually heading out to Oxford College in Cambridge, where they wielded, in fact, a strong influence on the religious life there, or at least they made a mark for themselves on the religious life there because of their particular commitment. Uh, this influence came through the formation of what was known as the Holy Club, the Holy Club. And it was a small group of approximately about 25 students there at Oxford College who were committed to strict rules of conduct, to regularly attending to communion, to regularly attending to acts of good works, often going out to the poor and visiting prisons and so forth. And, and then they would also read good books together and come together and to discuss them and so forth. Now, it was actually started by his brother Charles, but John soon became the leader of it because he was known uh, particularly for his organizational skills of, of giving structure to it. And that's why this group, the Holy Club, ended up taking on the nickname Methodist, which eventually became the name for the denomination that would come from his ministry. And, and the idea of Methodists really uh, picked up on their very methodical and structured and disciplined approach to the Christian life. And it was a commitment that stood in stark contrast to the rest of the student body there at Cambridge. It had become very apathetic, very lazy, but also very externally religious. And so their zeal stood out, and in fact, it made them no small number of enemies and brought animosity from other students and even from some of the leaders. It brought ridicule and derision from the culture at large of that university, but they were un unabated in their commitment. Uh, yet that commitment was described as one by a, a harsh legalism without the new birth. As a matter of fact, commenting on one, the mission of this club, uh, it is said that they were desired to save their souls and to live wholly to the glory of God. A noble enterprise, certainly, but undertaken by them from erroneous motives and upon wrong principles. But yet it had very much the external look of a religiously committed life. As a matter of fact, it is said of John, who was an example of this religious zeal, that he gave himself to an intensive reading of the Greek New Testament, fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays, received the communion weekly, which according to the practice of the time was deemed frequent, and labored among the prisoners in the local jail. So in other words, to look at his life was to see a man who was sold out for the cause of the glory of God and was sold out for his desire to be a true member of the church of Christ, in that case, the church of England. The zeal of John and Charles also led them to travel to the young colonies of, an Amer of America as part of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Lands. Uh, 
On that journey, however, a significant event happened. They were traveling, of course, by sea. And as they were traveling by sea to the Americas for this gospel mission, a great storm arose and it threatened the lives of all who were on the church. But it also did this. It revealed the state of their faith. The prospect of imminent death caused within John and his brother Charles, but particularly in John, an intense fear. An intense anxiety and fear of being called out of this world into the next to stand before God. And this fear was only exaggerated and emphasized when it was said in contrast to another group of travelers who were on this boat, a group of Moravian travelers. And they were simply from, they were essentially from Germany. They were part of a pietist movement. But in the midst of this same storm, they had an, an observable calm, a kind of trust, a sort of settledness, a lack of anxiety in what the outcome might be. Well, this made a great impression on him. And later, when they arrived in Georgia, Wesley met with some a Moravian leader by the name of Spagenberg, and the conversation is reported as follows. This leader, Spagenberg, said to him, Do you know Jesus Christ? John could only reply, I know he is the Savior of the world. Whereupon Spagenberg countered, True, but do you know that he has saved you? Do you know that he has saved you? Now, at this point... John lacked assurance. And that question then stung him deeply in his conscience, but it also remained in him as an unanswered question, a sort of unanswered evaluation of his life and of his commitment. All his religious zeal, his disciplined attendance to religious matters, and boldness to accept ridicule by others were all done in the flesh. It was to establish his own righteousness, and he knew that he did not have peace with God. However, he was doing all of the things he thought necessary to bring about that peace, but it never did. It never did. So he ended up going into the colonies and continuing his ministry there, which was not without some difficulty and a bit of scandal. But nonetheless, he finished his mission there and he went back to England, he and Charles. And as soon as they got back, they searched out another Moravian leader, this group that had made such an impact on him. In the course of time... Charles ended up being converted, his brother, by reading with someone the book, uh, the commentary, Luther's commentary on Romans. And about a week later, it's reported that John had a similar experience uh, while attending actually an, an Anglican meeting at in a church in a place called Aldersgate. And sometimes you could put in Aldersgate, it's known as the Aldergate experience. And he reports it this way in his journal. Or one gives this uh, account. While Luther's preface to the commentary on Romans was being read, there suddenly broke upon him something similar to what that epistle had brought to the tortured soul of the great German. As Wesley recorded it in his journal, about a quarter before nine, while he, being Luther, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And, and it had an assurance, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Often recognized as being the moment when John Wesley was truly converted. That he truly came to understand that salvation was in Christ alone. That all of his works contributed nothing to his eternal felicity or to his eternal joy. But rather it was faith solely in what Christ had accomplished for him. And that brought to him then a new zeal, a new passion, and a new power for ministry. That eventually led him to become a significant force in the Great Awakening here in America. Of course, along with George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. There's another member of that club who stands out. Who also is an example to us of one who came to experience a reality that all his religious zeal could not bring. And that is George Whitfield. He was also an early part of the Holy Club, and in his journals, he actually spoke very highly of it, and very highly of his friends, John and Charles, and of the commitment they had, and, and the impact they had in many ways. Uh, however, he was also one who was very involved in religious life while knowing very little of religious reality and the reality of faith in Christ. 
and before his conversion, he had a life that was marked by particular sins, petty theft and a vulgar language and the tendency to read plays and to lie and skip and those kind of things. But he had an experience uh, early on in his teens in which this brought about a change. It kind of struck him with the direction he was going. And so it produced in him a lot of religious commitments of praying and praying uh, and going to uh, communion and so on and so forth. But he still also had an unrest in him and a constant sense of the hypocrisy between what he was on the outside and the reality that was still present in his heart. However... In the course of his life, uh, he was given a book by someone. It's called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. I think it's Richard Scalgill, or if you want to look it up. Uh, it could be Richard or John. But in reading this book, he recorded an experience that greatly impacted him in his journals. And he, and he says this, I quote, At my first reading, I wondered what the author meant by saying that some falsely placed religion in going to church, doing hurt to no one, and being constantly in the duties of the closet, and now and then reaching out their hands to give alms to the poor neighbors. Alas, thought I, if this be not true religion, what is? God soon showed me, for in reading a few lines further, that true religion was unto the soul of God and Christ formed within us. A ray of divine light was instantaneously darted in upon my soul, and from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must be a new creature. But in fact, this experience did not lead to his conversion. It led to him understanding what conversion must consist of. However, instead of a rest in Christ, he tried even harder, but tried, to, but tried even harder now with a greater sincerity and tried to give more of his heart to it. He did not yet have peace with God. He was more zealous in attention to the externals, even to the extreme abuse in his body during the season of Lent with fasting, incessant prayer from his burdens, a continual sense of his sin, resolves to do more for Christ, shutting himself up from most relationships and doing good works. And God, even in this period too, when he used to visit the poor in the prisons, used him in the salvation of a husband and wife, a young couple. And yet in all of this, he had not peace with God. He was still a stranger to the comforts of the gospel and true faith in Christ. Eventually, in this intense period and harsh abuse of his body in which his health was strongly declining, God laid him low with sickness that lasted several weeks. And while he was on his sickbed, he began to consider and confess, I quote, All my former gross, notorious, and even my heart sins also were now set home upon me, of which wrote down some remembrance immediately and confessed them before God morning and evening. In this time of lamenting and wrestling with God from a deep burden and weakness of soul and body, he gives this account of his conversion. And I quote, After having undergone innumerable buffetings of Satan and many months inexpressible trials by night and day under the spirit of bondage, God was pleased at length to remove the heavy load to enable me to lay hold on his dear son by a living faith. And by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me as I humbly hope even to the day of everlasting redemption. But oh, what joy, what joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and the abiding sense of the pardoning love of God and a full assurance of faith broke in upon my disconsolate soul. Surely it was the day of my espousal, a day to be had in everlasting remembrance. It was the day of his salvation. After years of struggling, after years of confessing, after years of commitment, after years of zeal in the church, this was the day of his salvation. From this experience, a key theme of his preaching consisted of the doctrine of the new birth. The new birth, a key theme that resounded continually from his mass preaching and his evangelism is that ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. As a matter of fact, one of his titles of his sermons was the new birth and the justification by faith in Christ Jesus. It was a message that mirrored in many ways Jesus' own to a religious culture that you must be born again. You must be born again. 
You cannot rest on the laurels of Abraham or of Moses or even of those who are your leaders or of your knowledge of Scripture. You must be born again. He was speaking, as was Wesley and as was George Whitfield, to a very religious culture steeped in religion but empty of the life of Christ. While the precise experience of either Wesley or Whitfield is not something to be emulated or that has to follow the exact same pattern, that can be different for each person. It's not always with the same emotional struggle and the same you know, momentous moment that brought about the change. However, what is the same for everyone is that they must be born again and must experience the sovereign work of the Spirit. In short, the reason I give these is because they demonstrate for us that a culture steeped in religion is capable of many things. It's capable of producing religious zeal. It's capable of producing religious duty. Capable of producing a measure of doctrinal knowledge. And even, to some extent, religious emotion. All of which, at the same time, can be devoid of the reality of spiritual life. And the reality of salvation and of regeneration. In other words, lacking the real experience of the new birth, that life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Or to put it in the words of Paul, it's possible to hold a form of godliness while denying its power. Or to always be learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth in 2 Timothy 3. Now this can happen in the case of false teachers as Paul was addressing in 2 Timothy 3 and in the context of sincere effort that is yet ignorant of the gospel. Ignorant of the gospel, as the Jews were at first, as, as they're described by Paul, when he says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And again, it's no different today. There's no shortage of Christian churches. There's no lack. You can go on YouTube or attend conferences of massive Christian events. There's no shortage of great displays of emotion and tears and excitement. And there's no shortage of commitment to Christian causes and to some degree of knowing the gospel message. There's no shortage of that in the culture at large. But the question is this. How much of it is a genuine display of spiritual life and the fruit of a regenerate heart? The work of the Holy Spirit. How much of it consists of those who weep tears at certain songs and have a hope in heaven who will ultimately be rejected when they stand before the throne of God and of Christ? Or another question is, how can I be sure it's true of me? Or maybe an equally pressing question is this. How can I, with all of my weakness, remaining sin, failures, and littleness of faith, know that I truly belong to Christ and that I have his life in me? Those are the important questions. And those are the questions that John answers in his epistle. And he labors to make it clear for two th reasons. One is to encourage those who are doubting. Those who are falling under the influence of false teachers who had come into the church, the spirit of Antichrist. Those who are looking at themselves and wondering, is it true? Do I really belong to Christ? And also, it is... Uh, its purpose is to distinguish those who truly belong to Christ and those who don't. So it has the goal of encouraging and by the same, at the same time evaluating that which is true and that which is false. And this is the plain meaning or reason or purpose of John writing when he says this in 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. So that you might know that you have eternal life. So you might be confident that you participate in the life that is in Christ. So that you might know, regardless of whatever else and external pressures might be on you to cause doubt, whatever uh, struggles that may continue because of sin, that you might know that you have eternal life. That's what is the burden of his heart in writing. In fact, he repeats this throughout the letter. In chapter 2, he says this, is I'm writing these things, or this is why he's writing. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him. In verse 5, by this we know that we are in him. Verse 13, I'm writing to you because you know him who has been from the beginning. 
And on and on he goes. Verse 14, I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And he repeats this throughout. I want you to know. I want you to have certainty. I want you to be clear. I want you to have confidence. I want you to have a deep sense of assurance of the sovereign work of God that has taken place within you. And if that has taken place, then there are going to be certain marks. There's going to be a way that you can tell. There's going to be things that you can look at in your inner life, in your external life, that are either going to affirm it or disprove it. That are either going to give you praise of confidence in his work or make you cry out for forgiveness because you are a stranger to grace. That is the point. And the knowledge spoken of here is a, is a knowledge of genuine experience. Uh, you sometimes hear the words gnosko order. Those are the Greek words that many of you are familiar with. And, and sometimes there's a sharp distinction between a, a knowledge of experience and then a knowledge that's more factual, intellectual. And the, that's true to some extent. There's a lot of overlap in those terms. It's context itself that has to decide exactly the nuance that the writer is giving to it. But that being said, there, is general, there are general characteristics that make that distinction true. More often and more commonly, that term gnosko is, is a word that speaks of experience. As a matter of fact, sometimes you'll see translated true knowledge in an intensive form of epigonosko. In other words, it's a deep and a sincere and a true knowledge. And that is often what he uses here in this language. It is a knowledge of experience, a knowledge that says, I know, a knowledge that says, I have come to know this and know the reality of it, not merely as something outside of me, not merely as a desire, but something that is true of me. In fact, it would be to say yes to what Peter said, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, it's to know that we have. So like I said... This being the theme of John's letter and this being an important question that we must ask, we're going to spend the next few weeks. Here I'm just going to introduce it and then we'll get into it a bit more specifically uh, down the road. And I want to begin by this, this first point. is by saying that to share in the life of Christ is to participate in the nature of God. Regeneration bears the marks of God's nature. Regeneration bears the marks of God's nature. And that is the first big general point. And that will look primarily at verses 1 through 7. Or really down to verse 10. And first I would note about this, that God is relational in nature. God is relational in nature. He's relational. And this is the great reality of creation and man made in the image of God. Man was created, as we are familiar with, to reflect to know, to serve, to delight in God as creator. God did not create man to be related to him as some distant power, some disinterested ruler or dispassionate deity. He created mankind, male and female, to be in relationship with him, to love him with our whole being, heart, mind, and strength, and to love others who bear his image. That is the reason that he made us. Sin is a rejection of that relationship it's proper in its proper order anyway, and yet God who established it is also the restorer of it. Let me begin by reading the first few verses here. So we begin in making this point. Uh, in verse 1, and, and I'll just read down to verse 4. That's as far as we'll get this morning. 1 to 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested... And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. These are profound words and certainly as I noted at the beginning more there than we're going to take our time to get into but I want to make one broad observation and then just consider it in these verses a little bit more and that is that God is relational that God is relational and that the very essence of eternal life at the very heart of eternal life is to be in relationship with God through Jesus Christ and he says it in the most marvelous way, in the most wonderful way, and in the most profound way in these few verses. 
Now, these opening verses, I do at least have to acknowledge, have, have engendered a lot of discussion because he says it in a very unusual way, grammatically speaking. He says it in ways that we wouldn't expect. Why, we're certainly not going to have a grammar lesson. I could simply say this, that in the language, there is a male, there's masculine, feminine, and then there's neuter. This is neuter terms that are clearly referring to Christ, which is unusual. Uh, He says in the beginning of the translation, if you have an ESV, uh, it says that which, or if you have a New American Standard, it says what. That's how he refers to the object of it. What, or that which which is nonetheless clearly a reference to Christ. But it's said in ambiguous and unusual language, and intentionally so. Why would John do that? Because it draws attention not so much to the bare reality of the historical Christ, but to the essential meaning of his person and ministry, which he'll make clear in just a sec. To the essential meaning. He's not looking so much of saying at the historical Christ. He will do that. He's going to do that very shortly in the very next statements. But he's wanting first to draw attention to the reality that was manifest in the life of Christ. To the reality that was demonstrated of God in the life of Christ. And so he gives two opening statements that bring this out. He says, what was from the beginning? What was from the beginning. Now again, this is a lot of concern on what this exactly means. Is he talking about the beginning of his ministry? Is he talking about the beginning of his incarnation? Is he talking about the beginning of creation? What exactly is he talking about by saying that what was from the beginning? Of course, familiar with John's gospel, the first thing that we would think of is that opening lines of the gospel that he was in the beginning that he was the one who was worth God with God the word who was was God he through whom all things came into being and as we think of those words we think of the very first words of scripture that in the beginning God created and we have immediately a sense of the divine majesty of Christ That he is the one from whom and through whom all things came. That he is the one who has eternally lived with the Father and been in relationship with the Father. The one who was with the Father who was revealed in the flesh. And that certainly is a part of the idea here. As a matter of fact, he says, concerning the word of life. He defines the who and the what in these words. Concerning the word of life. The word of life. This is a statement not only about the nature of Christ, but about the nature of what he revealed about God. So this phrase, from the beginning, certainly brings us back to that statement of the gospel. It implies to us the profound reality of the eternal nature of Christ as the Son. But it does also refer to what was revealed through him in his incarnation, namely that gospel that he proclaimed. And that's what's picked up in the word of life. In the beginning, it could is also brings out the idea of the beginning of the revelation of God in him, in the revelation of him as the word of God, the word of God, the very revelation of God. This phrase from the beginning is used in these ways. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, For this is the message which we have heard from the beginning. The message that we have heard from the beginning, in that case, that as the fruit of divine life in us, that we should love the brethren. We should love the brethren because Christ the Son has conquered sin on our behalf. Something we'll look at later. It is related to the commandment to love then as well. In chapter 2, verse 7, I'm writing to you a new commandment. Not a new commandment, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning, from the beginning of your understanding of the gospel, from the beginning of your understanding of the work of Christ and of the ministry of Christ. This isn't new, but I am essentially reminding you of it. And he says the same thing in verse 24. Of chapter 2, as for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. That you have heard from the beginning. So John does this throughout his letter and in many of his writings, but particularly in his letters. He makes these intentionally ambiguous statements to capture the fullness of it. 
And here, by saying what was from the beginning, he is looking to highlight the reality of what was revealed in Christ in his nature and in his being and throughout his ministry as he revealed the words that brought life, the message of the gospel and the nature of God. But he doesn't want it to stay out in some spiritual, ethereal sense, and so he immediately does remind us that this message came through the reality of a very human and historical person. And we're not getting into the background, but this is related to what he's addressing in terms of the error that was there. But just take these words as they are. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was manifested, that we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. He wants to make clear, however, this is not just some ethereal, detached, spiritual reality, that this reality was manifest in a real historical person, but someone that we see not merely as a human being, but with the spiritual perception of his true nature, that he was the Son, a Son eternally with the Father. And that's what is revealed in this is where I want to head to to make this point. And what did he say they proclaimed then? This word of life, this one who was from the beginning, this one who was the revelation of God, he says this, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This is an amazing statement. What he's saying essentially there is that this life of God, which is unseen to us, unknown to us, this eternal life of God, this life as he exists in himself, this life as God relates to himself, this, this eternal reality of who God is in his own nature and his own being is revealed to us. How is it revealed to us? In Christ. What was the revelation of Christ? Namely, when we look at him, we see his own relationship with the Father. His own relationship with the Father as the Son. And we see the fruit of that relationship in his obedience to the Father to accomplish the Father's will, which ultimately was to bring others to share in that relationship. The life of God, which consists of Jesus' eternal relationship to the Father as Son, was manifest in his incarnation. In the incarnation of the Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, he was the embodiment of divine Life. That is what eternal life is. Eternal life is at its essence the life that God shares within himself. The eternal love of the Father for the Son. The Son for the Father. The Father and Son for the Spirit. The Spirit for the Father and Son. And this eternal reciprocal love of relationship. And that is revealed here And here is the amazing thing that eternal life revealed in Christ, the eternal life of the eternal God in his eternal relationship to one another is the life that he brings to fallen humanity to invite them in and to bring them in. That's the amazement of it. That salvation was not merely about not going to hell. He is here saying that eternal life at its very heart is this. It is for the sinner to in, be brought in through the Son into his own eternal relationship with the Father. To relate to him, to fellowship with him, to enjoy him. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ himself defined it this way in his prayer to the Father. In John chapter 17, verse 3, he says this. You might be familiar with this. He says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And as you're familiar with, his mission in bringing out that knowledge of the Father was through his intimate interaction with his creation, with his disciples, and ultimately with his redeemed, that he longs for them to be with him in heaven so that they can see his glory and so that they can know him even more fully and him shower his grace upon them. That is what essentially eternal life is. One put it this way. The wording hints at the idea of fellowship within the Godhead, God is a God of relationship, and that is why the goal of John's pro proclamation is fellowship. And that's immediately in verse 3, what he goes to. What we have seen 
And what we have heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That is at the heart of their proclamation. That you may enter into the fellowship that we enjoy with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That you may share in that as well. And he wants them to know that you do share in that relationship. And this is then a profound idea of what we have in common in Christ. We're familiar with the language again of koinonia. It has the idea of fellowship, basically. However, the fellowship here is not merely a shared common interest. It is not merely a shared uh, doctrinal commitments. It's not merely shared characteristics of life. What he's saying here is that the grounds of this fellowship is an equally as a participation together in the life of God himself, the eternal God, having eternal life, participating in the eternal relationship that the Son has with the Father and the Father with the Son. That is at the very heart of it. It's not merely when we gather as Christians that we happen to like the same things, that we happen to like to talk about the same things, or that we happen to like each other at some superficial level. It is to say when the church gathers, it gathers as the temple of God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit as children of God who equally share in the life of God. That means in some way that is beyond our comprehension, the life of God flows through his people even now as we gather together. And that's what we remember in the table. When we come to the table, these aren't merely signs, again, of some distant deity, some dispassionate deity, somebody totally detached from us, but it is the evidence that he is among us, that he is in us, and by his spirit and by his life shared by us that we are united together as the body of Christ. That's the idea of it. And here he says that's at the very heart, then, of the gospel. The very heart of the message is that we would have fellowship with one another as the outworking of our fellowship with Christ. That's what it means in its essence to be saved. It is, in a more doctrinaire word, what it means to be reconciled. To be reconciled. It includes the idea of justification by faith. It includes the substitutionary atonement of Christ, things we'll look at later. It includes those things, but the end of those things is reconciliation, a reconciled relationship with the Father, a participation in the love between the Father and the Son. I just want to mention a couple of verses that really are passages that kind of just blow you away to try to think of them. Let me just give you a few in John. In John chapter 6, he says this. Talking about those who truly believe unto eternal life. He says, I am the living bread that came down, verse 51, out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which also I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came out of heaven, not as the the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. What does he mean? Well, he's already set the terms for understanding that language at the beginning of this conversation. When he said in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. In other words, it is to take in the entirety of who Christ is, the full revelation of him, the full Acceptance of his words as the words of life, the words that contain that which the Spirit uses to create life. 
It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They come from the Spirit. They are empowered by the Spirit. And their end is to produce life. A life that is a living faith that lives even as we, they lived in the wilderness on manna. It is to live by faith in the fullness of the revelation of who Christ is. That's the idea. He says it something similarly. We're taking it a bit further in John chapter 10. He says this, I am the good shepherd, my own, and listen, I am the good shepherd, verse 14, and I know my own, and my own know me, and here it is, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, he says, you as a believer enter into that same knowledge, that same knowledge. In chapter 14, in the context of the coming of the Spirit, he says these words in verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. And he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Listen, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode in him. Many more passages like that. The idea is this, is to enter into life in Christ, to enter into eternal life, is to be by the sovereign purposes and glory and grace and love of God to be engrafted into his own love for his son. So if you are a Christian, the guarantee and the fullness of God's love is not based on you. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on anything about you. He doesn't look at you and just think of what a precious little child you are. And that in eliciting love, he looks at you as the prize of his son. He looks at you as the reward of his son's sacrifice. He looks at you in his son and the love that he has for the son is then profoundly poured out on you as a Christian. That is the basis of his love and that is what it means then to be in Christ. And it is our response to this grace of God. It is our re- response to the overwhelming mercy of God. It is our response to the glory of God is revealed in Christ. It is the ability to have be the grace of having been given eyes to see that glory and to see who he is that elicits then out of our heart the great affection and the great love and the great desire to serve him and to love him and to obey him. That means then this, just as the first point, and this is introduction. We'll look at what that looks like in the next couple of weeks. But at the deepest part of the Christian's inner life is the reality then of desiring nearness to God. A nearness defined, however, not simply by emotional experience, not having a sense of religious security, or having some kind of mystical impression of divine realities. But it is to desire the nearness of God by a clear apprehension of who he is as revealed in Scripture and in Christ. It is an apprehension then that produces in the true child of God a desire for holiness in thought, word, deed, attitude, action, intention, in every way. It produces a desire for holiness and to give yourself completely to him in everything that would please and glorify him. And the Christian's heart is totally in tune with that. And the Christian's heart says, at the base of it, I want to know you. And if we've ever seen the slightest glimpse of to know him, it means that I want to give my everything to you. I want to be dissolved of myself and be fully committed to you. And to be fully in line with what it means in that divine life, which ultimately is displayed in Christ, who said this, not my will, but yours be done. I came to do your will, O God. And that is the heart, then, of a Christian. And so the very first thing to recognize about being born again is that it is to enter into the life of God, the life that was revealed in His Son and that comes through His Son, through the work of the Son in being a propitiation for our sin, in the work of the Son in the resurrection as He was raised by the power of the Spirit and the Father and His own power and divine glory. And it is to enter into a relationship. But here is the thing as well. 
It is to know that we have that relationship. It is to know that we can say that he is not merely God, but he is my God. And he's not merely my God in terms of my emotional experience, but it is because in all of my waking moments, the reality that impresses itself to various degrees, but constantly, is that I walk before and with the God who saved me and redeemed me. And I want to foster that relationship. And I want to grow in it. And I want to demonstrate it. Now, what then does that look like in reality? Well, that's again what we'll look at. What does it mean then to be a share in the life of God and to manifest and, re- and to reflect the nature of God? And it has profound moral implications. And that's what he gets to in verse 5. That God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And that is the foundation at the very beginning of John's explanation of then what does it mean to have this life in us and his life. So that's what we'll pick up. But let's think about that as we come into the table. Let's remember that we are here through these symbols and through these signs that were given to us by the Lord himself, the very Lord that is right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, to remember our attachment to him, to remember his grace to us, and to remember our future with him, and to remember the great blessing and joy of forgiveness of sin, the hope of heaven, and the mutual shared life and love that we have together. So as we... Pad the elements, passed out after I pray. Take some time to meditate and then we'll remember together. Father, thank you for your word and, and thank you for the examples not only in your word but also throughout the history of your people that provide for us both instruction, illustrations and warning but also hope and clarity to know what it means to be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son, who knows what it means to live not in the futility of externals and self-effort, but to enter into the life that is in your Son, the life that is in you, O Christ. As your servant Luther said, to realize that after all of the torture that he put himself through, it was to enter into the gates of heaven. And indeed, those gates are in Christ and in Christ alone. And faith in Christ alone. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider these truths, that you would impress upon us the profound marvel and wonder of having an actual relationship with you and your Son, of what it means to know you, that we speak to you not as a distant deity, but one who has come near in the Lord Jesus Christ to draw us near. And so, Lord, even as we remember this table, may you cause these truths to have clarity and, and accomplish your purpose through them in us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.